This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, hello there. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, everybody. Hello. I'm going to say hello like 50 different times before I start this podcast. Hello, everyone. Can you dig it? I can. My name is Sam LaCrosse. I am your host coming back for another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast, a throwback episode today. So we are going to get into a very interesting topic this evening, morning, whenever you're listening to this 50 years from now, if I'm alive by this point. I don't know. Why, I don't know why me being alive has to do with recording a podcast and listening to it. But anyways, um, this is a very interesting topic, and I plan to have someone actually on the conversation series in around probably about two months to talk about this exact cop topic in terms to the most, I would say, pertinent aspect to uh, the topic of today's post, which is going to be a broad general topic of decentralization. So I have a guy, a friend of mine that was actually a former enemy, funny story that we'll get into uh, when I bring him on, if he agrees to come on, I think he will. But, um, you know, just so he works in the crypto space. He works in a kind of like an intermediary. So he basically works on breaking into institutions and working on getting them to adopt crypto into their institution. So if like you were a financial services company, a bank or like a retail store, you could be like, oh, why don't you allow people to get paid in crypto? And they're like, mm, I would like, you know, cash, please. I'd like, you know, dollars to get paid. And they're like, yeah, maybe you should do this. But we're not really going to talk about, well, we're definitely not going to talk about Bitcoin today because I don't really understand. Well, I do understand it kind of, but I don't really understand it enough to like base a whole post on it as of yet. But anyways, so what we're going to talk about today is kind of centralized in, that's actually, no, but I'm ching, centralized in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency topic, but it's happening all over the place, which I think is really, really interesting. I wrote this in November of 2020 when it was kind of, this is before the whole, you know, Wall Street bets, GameStop shit hit the fan. This is before a lot of other things happen in terms of people moving out of a lot of places and everything, although that was still going on to a degree, and we'll maybe touch on that later. But I think it's a fascinating topic, and I think it's kind of something that we all, especially as young people who are really going to be the drivers of a lot of this change, in my opinion, need to know about. And I think this post is a good way to start about it. It kind of forced me to think about it, you know, okay, what have I done to either participate in this trend or observe this trend or kind of do a mix of both or whatever? So... Here we go. Let's kind of just get into it, see where it leads us. I actually haven't read this since November of 2020, which makes this at the time of this coming out. Um, probably what? Like 17 months ago? So it's been a while. So here we go. It's hard to identify one thing that can cause the utter destruction and shittiness of everything. 
but I'm going to be so bold or and or headaceous as to try to do so. So around two weeks ago, in early November of 2020, the Wall Street Journal published an article about the future of colleges due to the COVID pandemic. The article and the accompanying video focused mostly on the near term, with the furthest outlook given by an education futurist, whatever the fuck that means, Brian Alexander, being at the end of 2021, so a little over two or three months ago, I should say now. However, Alexander and other higher education professionals cited for the article perceived a greater threat as well. If you haven't noticed, colleges and universities are getting thrown through a wood chipper right now. Never before have they experienced such a challenge, not only monetarily, but in terms of other things such as litigation, logistics, and public health. Oh yeah, and the whole, quote, educating the youth of America thing, which especially given uh, the recent events in the political world and the educational world in the last year of American life, this has gotten even more fucked up, particularly in the pre-college education level. We're going to stick at that area for now. Anderson estimates by his modeling that if the beer virus continues to rage hell throughout 2021, which it did, around 10% of the higher education institutions in our country will go under. Their stock will go to zero. They will cease to exist. Even more troubling for these entities, enrollment rates are dropping as well. According to a Forbes article that cited data from Clearinghouse, freshman enrollment has dropped 16.1% nationally, with community college taking the biggest hit at a whopping 22.7%. Students are deciding more and more now that the costs are outweighing the benefits of going to college. There's over $1.6 trillion in student loan debt right now, and it's probably gone up since this article. In fact, it probably definitely has. That is showing no signs of deceleration. A staggering over half of college graduates are currently living with their parents. This does not bode well, at least in the near term. But wait, there's more. Other entities are seeing this trend as well, and they're pouncing on it. Google just recently announced in September that they're, in September of 2020, that is, that they're creating a certification program for the fields of data analysis, project management, and user experience designers. The catch? You can get it done in six months instead of four years. No books, room and board, and tuition either. It only costs you merely $49 a month to access these courses on Coursera. The median salaries for the three jobs run accordingly. $66,000, $93,000, and $73,000. The minimum ROI off your six-month investment in time would be a whopping 2,248.9%. All you need is a Coursera conscription, or subscription, a laptop, and half a year. Congratulations, you're now an 18-year-old working for a big tech firm banking a minimum $4,000 above the average U.S. GDP per capita, only in America. I busted out laughing when I saw that program roll out. I can imagine every college administrator collectively shit their pants when they saw that nuke drop. I have my problems with big tech, but I don't like a lot of the hi about higher education either. I have a very large problem with a little bit of people diminishing a lot of people for not being college educated. It's what our friend, question mark, Gary V pointed out a couple posts ago, and actually we uh, talked about this last throwback post as well. It happens way too much in places such as the Midwest where I'm from, in the South. There's a reason why the whole quote-unquote coastal elite stereotype is a thing. Stereotypes are never all the way accurate, but every stereotype is rooted in some sort of truth. But it's not just academia. This type of change is happening everywhere. For example, in a live stream on YouTube, culture and political commentator Candace Owens announced she was joining the Daily Wire back in November 2020 in their election coverage, the largest growing independent conservative media company in the country that was run by Ben Shapiro, or is run by Ben Shapiro, I should say. This is a seismic shift. The goal of this aggressive move by the Daily Wire, according to Shapiro, is, quote, replace the legacy media. 
This may seem like a bold claim, but it's not. Surprisingly not, actually. In a statistic cited in her book Blackout, Owen cited from a personal analytics report that stated her reach per tweet she sends gets an average of about 2.5 million views. For contrast, the highest-rated show on CNN gets about 750,000 views. Cable news has to bankroll an entire set and show. While someone as influential as Owens can merely get wide and drunk, watch a 15-minute Rachel Maddow segment, roast her in a tweet composed in 45 seconds that run laps around what it took 15 minutes for someone like Rachel Maddow to say. People are starting to figure out that cable news in the mainstream media is a bad business model. It's outdated. It doesn't work anymore. Why would someone listen to Sean Hannity every night at exactly 9 o'clock Eastern when they could listen to Crystal Ball on YouTube whenever they wanted? People's time is valuable, and they're taking it back for themselves. They're not beholden to the yesteryear of Johnny Carson. They're beholden to their own time, and as they should be. That's the reason why places like Fox News, even though they're outperforming other mainstream channels in terms of ratings, are spiraling downward. In fact, let's stick with Fox News for a second. President Trump was currently, then President Trump was currently beefing with Fox News at the time due to being disgruntled over their early calls in some states that should not have been, as well as their quote-unquote unfair treatment of him by some anchors such as Chris Wallace, who now is leaving for CNN's new streaming service. And with all the shit that went down there in the past couple weeks, let's see how that works out. His rumored solution, he's making his own news channel, which has turned into his own social media app, Truth Social, with the full intent of crushing Fox into the dust. His base apparently has up to 60% of subscribers to Fox's internet channel affiliate, Fox Nation, in a Rolodex. They could bankrupt them in seconds if they wanted to. LinkedIn published an analysis of demographic data about two months ago, which had some startling statistics. People are moving out of cities in droves. The biggest hits, places like Boston, Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. The biggest gains, nowhere near those cities. It turns out, when it's expensive as hell to live somewhere, people are going to stay the fuck away and tell others to do the same. It's not rocket science. Malls don't exist anymore. Amazon stock has skyrocketed in quarantine. Bricks-and-mortar retail stores are being replaced by clicks-and-mortar retail. Will this totally run in-person shopping out of business? Most doubt so, and I do. But will these businesses have to pivot in order to compete? You bet they will. Walmart is doing a great job of this currently. Their e-commerce platform is superb. Big Lots, a lower-end retailer based in my home state of Ohio, has seen their stocks surge throughout the pandemic for their decisive pivot to this type of model. Aforementioned Big Tech is also in trouble. Bipartisan support for the breakup of these modern monopolies has accelerated, albeit for different reasons. Democrats don't believe they're taking enough things down, and while Republicans don't believe they're leaving enough things up. An antitrust suit at the time was just filed against Google. And big tech tycoons such as Jack Dorsey, or formerly such as Jack Dorsey, I guess, since he left Twitter, and Mark Zuckerberg were virtually dragged into Congress to testify for a wide range of accusations of things such as censorship, deplatforming, and editorial bias. The snowball is accelerating, too, and really blew open when they took President Trump off of Twitter. Concerned yet? How about two more citations from the aforementioned Ball and Shapiro, as well as help from Ball and her co-host on now Breaking Point, Sagar and Jetty, to really set you over the edge? First, let's turn to Shapiro. In an excerpt from his book, The Right Side of History, he lays out this disturbing trend across a wide variety of societal pillars. Quote, Gallup polls show that just our average trust in 14 key institutions is just 32%. Just 27% of Americans trust banks. Just 20% of Americans trust newspapers. Just 41% of Americans trust organized religion. That number is 19% for the federal government overall and 39% for the healthcare system. Only 30% of Americans trust public schools. 
18% trust big business, and 9% trust Congress. End quote. Yikes. Bond and Jetty in their book, The Populist Guide to 2020, however, point out a much more pointed trend. The overall trust in our society itself. Quote, An August 2019 NBC Wall Street Journal poll found that 70% of Americans see that they feel angry, quote, because our political system seems to be only working for the insiders of money and power, like those on Wall Street or inside of Washington, end quote. A large number of our fellow citizens go even further. In a study focusing on identifying the number of voters with a, quote, need for chaos, political scientists found 40% believe that, quote, when it comes to our political and social institutions, I cannot help thinking, quote, just let them all burn, quote, quote. I'm sorry, but follow the quotes. This is much easier to read. Don't read this blog.com. A similar number also believe that we, quote, cannot fix the problem in our social institutions. We need to tear them down and start over, end quote. You get that? When it comes to our social and political institutions, nearly half of America just wants to let them all burn, end quote. Final, end quote, by the way. <laughs> Disturbing indeed. But what single trend could point this, could this all point to? How could something as diverse and wide-berthing as this abhorrent trend be just one single thing? So, let's ask the GOAT and find out for ourselves. At the beginning of 2020, author and blogger Mark Manson released an article entitled, quote, Why You Should Quit the News. It talked a lot about the things that I talked about that were bad, and cited a lot of sources. However, that wasn't the underlying current of the article. The underlying trend of the article was the contrast between centralization and decentralization, Media is cyclical, and it has been for its entire existence. It has fluctuated between the centralized systems of town criers and cable news to the decentralized systems of word-of-mouth gossip, podcasting, and substack. And I believe that is the trend influencing everything that has been named so far. We are going from a centralized to a decentralized society. It explains the distrust in all of our institutions. It explains all the unrest that is currently going on or was going on at the time throughout America. It explains the meteorotic rise of new, more widespread institutions. It explains the cries for individuality and Marxism. It explains the courage of people to say no to the societal stigma of college for what they feel like is something better. It explains our trend and natural route of human nature towards the path of least resistance. But it doesn't explain one thing, and it's the most important thing to explain in such a large a shift as this. Is it, indeed, a good thing? And... The answer is that time will tell. We survived it before, but our society has never been the way it currently is before either. This is a massive societal shift, and it is going to affect everyone and everything. We must be ready for it. It's already happening. I don't think there's anything we can do to stop it at this point. But what we can do is figure out what the potential consequences are and how we can navigate them. As with all quote-unquote massive societal shifts, they can have different effects on different groups of people, obviously. It's very likely that both good and bad will come of this. We've seen this play out already with businesses being built in the devastation of some of the current centralized ones, podcasting versus legacy media, and unrest due to distrust in our institutions of power, Antifa and Occupy Wall Street. We like to see the bad, but there has been a lot of good as well. There will be a lot of change and pain that comes with it. Even our aforementioned social media giants, who may, including myself, who consider the pioneers of decentralization, are starting to feel the sting. In order to be unsurprised when this change of pace comes, we will look at three scenarios. The good, the bad, and what I feel is the most likely outcome. If decentralization is indeed the future, we must come with a way to predict all angles of that future. 
So, to get started, let's see how good of a Terminator era James Cameron I can be. The good. I feel like I delivered a lot of pessimistic shit in my intro, and I'm not sorry. However, I'll spare you the despair and probably longer and more page views for me and podcast listens for this medium, and not break the bad news first. I think there could be a lot of good to come with the decentralization of everything. There's a reason why we're trending towards it and away from centralization. Several reasons, in fact. The first main one that I see is that people want the truth. In these last few years of hashtag fake news and slamming hashtag fake news, a lot of people are ready to get back to normal and search out truth once again. And with decentralization, this can finally happen. The mainstream media has been exposed so greatly that I don't think there's any possible way that they can be trusted again. And this includes Fox News, by the way. Turns out calling people snowflakes for four years and then losing their shit after President Trump lo lost the election doesn't bode well for credibility. That, along with their supposed spurning of a good amount of their viewership due to their recent beef with the president, is going to eventually sign their death warrant. People aren't stupid. They know these things. The same is even going for big tech. The bipartisan support of the breakup of these modern-day monopolies has caught a lot of people by surprise, including me. But when you break it down, it makes sense. Left-leaning folks who want to break up big tech accuse them of enabling hate speech and violence. Right-leaning folks who want to break up big tech accuse them of enabling bias and censorship. The right-wing social media spinoff Parler was the first really break away from this trend until it got deplatformed by Amazon Web Services, but now things as Rumble and now Trump's True Social app are really gaining in popularity and prominence, with, for with popular conservative figures such as former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich announcing their move to these platforms. Parler at the time was downloaded more than 4 million times since the election. Patreon, although receiving backlash from cultural figures such as Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson recently, is the same way. Additionally, Rubin recently, recently had formed the website Locals, who now got looped into Rumble, acting as a quote-unquote bias-free community for creators to come together and collaborate, which raised over a million dollars in seed money in 2019. But are these sites a threat to big tech? Of course not. Nothing is a threat to Monopoly unless the government gets the, ball, get the, gets the balls to break it up. They can crush Locals, Parler, Rumble, all these other things that they want to. But it is a sign that people are moving their content off of more mainstream platforms onto a more centralized, decentralized base. And in droves. Even though Joe Rogan went to Spotify, which is a fairly large company in and of itself, he still took it off the second biggest search engine in the world, YouTube, that is owned by the largest search engine in the world, Google. That took some serious nads and a major thumping of the nose at big tech in order to pull it off. As for rumors of censorship at Spotify, and this might, you know, we're going to see how this goes here because I, um, I, this, this is going to be, this can be interesting. As for rumors of censorship at Spotify, I don't think Rogan gives a single fuck. And I still don't think he does. I actually saw him uh, do comedy a couple weeks ago and he clearly doesn't. Since he made the move to Texas to expand his empire, he's hit on Tim Kennedy, Glenn Greenwald, Tim Dillon four or five times at this point, Alex Jones tw once, Tristan Harris, Edward Snowden, Kanye West, Dave Chappelle, Douglas Murray, um... Uh, Dave Chappelle again, uh, Robert, all these, other, all these other people. He really doesn't give a shit. I'm 100% sure that at least half the Yo Pros working for Spotify had a conniption. And I'm also 100% sure that Rogan didn't care. He probably just laughed and smoked a joint in a DMT-laced weed rolled into $100 bills. But why the massive move? Why is Joe Rogan so popular? 
as well as the aforementioned Owen Shapiro crew at the Daily Wire, and Dave Rubin, and Jordan Peterson, and Sam Harris, and Alex Cooper, and so many others in this realm. Because people don't trust centralization at all. When was the last time that someone like Don Lemon, or Laura Ingram, or Chuck Todd could hold a handle, candle to one of these people above? Try about five years ago at the longest. People are sick of the deceit, the half-truths, the lies, the bullshit. They want cold, hard, unfiltered facts spewed at them from people who don't have an agenda other than to build their brand and make some cash. It's different than when you're owned by a corporation and have to toe the party line. Even our friend Tucker Carlson has been nearly forced out by Fox several times by stepping across that line more than they would like him to. He's cutting it damn close. Many expect him to jump aboard Trump News Network should it launch, and I would be the first to put my money down on the table if that would happen. When the institutions of deceit and lies go away, supposedly this will allow the truth to flourish. At least that's what the intention is. That's what the hope is for so many people. People can go to where they know the truth to lie, as is with so many of the folks above. When the powers that be are finally held accountable, perhaps the truth will rise. Perhaps. Additionally, with this movement towards a more decentralization of information, it will allow people easier access to find community. The difference between a cult and religion is this distinction. A cult worships a leader with overwhelming or troubling abundance, such as Charles Manson and David Koresh. However, a religion, if done right, is more of a community-bound group of people, not beholden to one thing except for a core of principles. However, these are usually descended from some sort of deified figure, such as the Buddha, Jesus Christ, or Muhammad. The key difference between a cult and religion is honesty. Charles Manson fed people lies about, making a better lies about making a better world when in reality he wanted to induce a racial war and kill people he thought were a threat to it. The Buddha fed people a path to enlightenment through willful suffering. David Koresh thought he was the second coming of Jesus Christ who had several wives while engaging in rampant emotional, physical, and sexual child abuse. The actual Jesus wanted people to act in good faith through good living. There is a difference. One is coercion, the other an invitation. One is obedience, the other a pathway. Were the people of the Branch Davidians and the Manson family a community? I'm sure the argument could be made. But an equally strong argument is that they were a community that, in hindsight, no one would fucking go near. There are a lot of Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, and other re great religions out there that don't do nearly the fucked up shit like someone like Jim Jones does. A true community is one in which people can do what they want, see who they want, and find their overall people easier without fear of being coerced or judged into doing so. There are rules and regulations that must be abided by, certainly. But in a holistic sense, a community allows you to do this, should it be a proper, non-fucked-up community. It does not have to be religious at all. It could be a small town where the most cited attraction is the local Walmart superstore off the highway. You can buy gas for about $1.50 per gallon. The people are nice and help one another out. They help a woman change a tire on her car and help a man with the bills and he loses his job. The children are invited to play with other children to take the stress off of both parents. Block parties are had, tailgates attended. The local sports teams are cheered upon and encouraged. Their people are their people, and they wouldn't have it any other way. The sense of purpose these hypothetical folks could have is due to one thing. A decentralization from the norms of society. There has to be a requisite disconnect between two groups, or there would be no two groups. They must think differently, or there is nothing special about that community or place. It would simply be one large mass of people who all think and do the same things, and that's no fun. But yet these people are happy, for the most part. They know that people have their back. 
They have some sort of shared purpose and means to carefully woven social fabric of their little bubble of the world. And they wouldn't have it any other way. They don't give a fuck why about half a percentage increase in their index fund yields or why Harry Styles wore a dress in the cover of Vogue. They have bigger and more important issues to worry about. The big thing that a lot of people who want to quote-unquote change the world miss is that a good amount of people don't want the world to change. They like the world the way it is. Do the vast majority stand up to the vice of society such as racism and sexism? Absolutely. But here's a newsflash. Most people just want to be left the fuck alone. They want to work their 40 hours a week, collect a check every two, and be left with their personal and communal ambitions. Through the process of decentralization, this is easier to do. More people are left the fuck alone because there are a few bigger things in control to do the fucking. When people have more choice and more freedom, it can lead to some good things should the spice of death of variety not take place. People are generally wanting a simple life where they can feel in control of their own world, and we should respect this. It's a big reason why people are pushing for decentralization in the first place. They're sick of too few people controlling too much of their lives. Community is the thing that people really desire. Not any of the petty shit that goes on in New York and Silicon Valley that people on Twitter think is, quote, game-changing. The centralized folks don't realize that the decentralized people could maybe give half a shit about what they're working on. They like the shift going on in society. They like their communities and the inherent honesty that's built into them. Another thing that people like is their mental well-being. Community helps enable better mental health as well. And the reason? You don't have critics and monopolists and social psychologists cramming down your throat how awful you are all the time. This is not a political argument. The right is just as bad as this is the left. There are two sides of the mob, remember? A lot of the problems that ensue within our generation, mostly pertaining around mental health, occur, in my estimation, because we can't be our true selves. I deal with and experience this problem quite frequently. My best friend of seven years now thinks I'm a racist. Or now did think I'm a racist. I haven't talked to him since this, but I guess it still thinks the same. I don't know. I got told by a job recruiter that me and everyone associated that, that I was a right supremacist. I've been told I have blood on my hands, that I hate gay people, that I'm a bigot, and this ism, the enemy. And this, understandably, takes a toll on anyone. For me, as a deep feeler and thinker, it hurts very badly. I don't hate anyone except for Randy from that 70s show. It constantly puts me under self-analysis and makes me question everything about my identity. I'm just a 24-year-old young person trying to make sense of whatever the fuck this thing called life is. When you start asking yourself if you actually are the awful, terrible person that so many people make you out to be, you go to dark places. Dark places indeed. With enhanced honesty and community involvement, this can be alleviated. It's hard to think that you're a bad person when you don't have the pessimistic bullshit infiltrating your head constantly. You need to be held accountable for yourself and make sure you are indeed not the things that people are accusing you of. However, no good person deserves to be under character assassination either. With a community of people to protect you, the chances of that happening fall dramatically. This isn't an argument for safe spaces. A community should hold you accountable in both ways, by not letting your character be shot to shit and by making sure you have a good enough character to stand on. But when people are less hostile towards you and more encouraging of you and the good person that you are, the feeling of alienation and confusion dissipates. In spaces that are less aggressive and tense, people can fill the void of assault in their head with a feeling of comfort and peace. Words hurt. Feelings are real things. We should take care of both of them. The best way you can do so, which takes place through decentralization, is find a group of people that want to see you grow and want to see you win. Through the process of decentralization, of cutting out all the major powers of society and redistributing them to a more individualized basis, 
We can take back the feeling of honest communication with the community and enhance mental well-being and stability. That is, of course, if we don't fuck it up. The bad. But, like most things, we have a phenomenal chance of fucking them up. It's probably so that we, we will in at least one of the several instances that I'm going to name. Perhaps we'll fuck them all up. I'm not a betting man, but I say we have a shot, especially with how the last two years have gone. The thing about these scenarios that are always confusing and increase the likelihood of us messing them up is that they are on the exact opposite side of the coin as the most optimistic scenarios. They tend to walk the line hand-in-hand hand with each of them in turn. They are a wolf in sheep's clothing. They don't really care about the subtle nuances that your brain does not pick up. That makes them incredibly dangerous. These things usually are a slippery slope. They creep up on you when you do not expect them to do so. We've seen this play out numerous times in the past few years. The first potentially bad scenarios that will bring and lead to even more division without our already divided country. The more we stray from centralization where everyone gets the same information, the deeper we dig into our own foxholes of our own information. Centralized institutions like the media not be the greatest, but there's still a common well for us all to drink from when we need it. That just has value and utility to society still. Which leads me to a common misconception that needs to stop immediately. There are a lot of talks, mostly by self-help con artists, about finding and living, quote, your truth. The problem is that there is no such thing as your truth. There is only the truth. You can say that your truth is the thing that you you can say that your truth is that you think that error doesn't exist. But fortunately for everyone else and unfortunately for you, error does exist. Sorry to shit in your cornflakes. But then again, I'm not. This is a very dangerous attitude to adopt. In fact, I would argue that is the most dangerous attitude to adopt. Underlying this attitude is a debate that has been waging the undercurrents of most things in society for the last couple of decades. The debate of modernism versus postmodernism. You've probably at least heard of the terms before, most likely by some guy who wants to bloviate with big words on Twitter or by a college professor you didn't listen to because you were sending archived Snapchat videos of you tenderizing your man meat to a seven from your managerial accounting cl class. Jeez, I fucked that up really bad. Okay. <laughs> in any case... The two concepts must be defined in order to grasp the gravity of these opposite movements. Modernism, in a nutshell, is the basic concept that the world is definable and has metrics that can measure what goes on within its confines. For example, a ruler is 12 inches long, 1 plus 1 equals 2, drinking bleach is not attuned for optimal health, if you shove 9 inch nails through each one of your eyelids it will hurt, etc. Postmodernism, on the other hand, is the concept that the truth is not definable and run by metrics. There is an inherent skepticism in the, quote, truth. For example, what if a ruler really is not 12 inches long? What if 1 plus 1 does not equal 2? What if the government and number system is wrong? Conspiracy. We live in a largely modernist world, and that's a good thing. Humans can't handle that much uncertainty. It would drive us batshit nuts if we thought that nothing was ever clear or true. 
However, postmodernism has an appeal, largely due to the fact that people of nefarious behavior have been using it strictly as a power game. Nothing is definable, so who are people that are in charge and run things to have the power? Who are they to decide? For example, the reason that Jordan Peterson became famous is that he opposed a piece of Canadian legislation called Bill C-16, which wrote into law around 80 different gender pronouns such as Zim and Zur that people could use to identify themselves. Peterson vehemently disagreed with this. He viewed it as writing Marxism into the law, which I would agree with. This is postmodernism. It is destroying the social constructs of everything. It is a fire that should not be played with lightly. The 1619 Project by the New York Times is another example. In this piece, the authors made the argument that America was not made in 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but in 1619 when the settlers first landed here. In addition, the roots of America were not rooted in the idea of Judeo-Christian values and Greek reason, but in bigotry and slavery. This upends the established precedent of what our country was based on. Even with the ongoing racial justice protest conversations going on in our country currently, it is a dangerous thought to overturn the foundation of your entire country, whether you agree with Nicole Hannah-Jones and company or not. Tucker Carlson has said repeatedly that the Democratic Party has wanted absolute power over everything since its inception. The Democratic Party was not founded on the ideals of totalitarianism, but simply a spin on the interpretation of the United States Constitution and conservative Republicans. And this is also a dangerous thought. More than half the country voted for Joe Biden, a Democrat, for president in 2020, totaling more than, I think, 80 million, it says 70 here, but I think 80 million people, the most for any presidential candidate ever. It is an incredibly dangerous assumption to assume that the underlying message of what 70 million people support is intent on world domination. The Nazis did this in concentration camps by stripping the victims of the Holocaust slowly but surely of every bit of dignity that they had left until they didn't see them as human anymore. The atrocities happened immediately after. They threw babies up in the air and skewered them with bayonets. They ripped them to pieces with their bare hands right in front of their mothers. They ripped metal fillings out of their teeth to use for war materials. And the Stalinists did this as well. They demeaned a whole group of people, the Kulaks, primarily farmers, by seizing all of their land and property for the state for redistribution. They didn't give a single fuck that it starved millions to death. They had the power, possessing agricultural resources, but who were they to decide the fate of the people? It would be better for us to have it, said the Stalinists. Now, I am in no way or form comparing a bill on gender pronouns to the act of two of the worst regimes in modern human history. However, it would be inaccurate to say that they weren't coming from the same genesis. This talk is dangerous no matter who is repeating it. It is bipartisan, non-ethnic, non-religious. It does not have a face. It is only a gateway to a slippery slope into anarchy and revolution. Modernism is the truth. While postmodernism is your truth, they are not the same thing. Please do not think that they are. We all have different experiences and perspectives, and they should all be expressed and heard. But how we feel must not overtake how we think. Even though emotions drive our decisions, we cannot afford to throw our ethnics and reason by the wayside. Events can, that, that can spring from this conundrum are too important to be disregarded so casually. Some of these things can be good. The American Revolution was a good thing. So is the civil rights movement and the legalization of gay marriage and women's suffrage. But a lot of them are not good. The Nazis and Soviets certainly were not. Neither was the French Revolution. Neither was the destabilization of the Middle East. Neither was Mao's China, Hirohito's Japan, Mussolini's Italy, and the current state of places like Rwanda and Yemen. Only very rarely does overturning the established order yield good results. Both of the recent incarnations of the Joker have taught us this, as well as Bane and Thanos. 
They're the specters of postmodernism, to quote Karl Marx. It's gaining steam, and it's gaining steam fast. Even if the institutions are not honest all the time, they can still bring us together for something. Sports, and even this is debatable now, are perhaps the last great thing that can do this consistently, and even that has been turned into something that's politicized. There is a time and place for discussion, but there is also a time and place for solace as well. We don't have to argue and fight all the time, but that is what our country has turned into. In a conversation I had with my grandmother about this very topic, she told me she had never seen so much hate in her entire life than she had seen right now. And that's something coming from a woman who's near 80 and lived through the 1960s. This continued acceleration of the modernist versus postmodernism debate has led to a re dramatic spike in common enemy identity politics, which is the act of acting incredibly tribal to another group based on its direct opposition to your own. Tribalism is running even more and more rampant. The two opposing cultures in any scenario are becoming much more territorial and protective towards whom they seem as a threat. They see as a threat, excuse me. Again, on its face, this is not an issue to be overly concerned with. We should stick up for ideas and our opinions should they not tread on the right for others to do the same. But now it's not that simple. It is so easy to slip down the slope now with tools such as social media at our disposal. It's so easy to enable that hatred and vitriol and venom that my grandmother was referencing. And, as humans, we tend to take the path of least resistance. We tend to do what is easy. What is easy is to demonize, hate, and oppose. If this continues, we could soon become a country where there will be no compromise. Nothing will get done. If you think there's frustration now, just wait until no one gives a fuck anymore. It's either steamroll or be steamrolled. There's only one predator and prey. Any notion of abundance or care or decency for the other side will be thrown to the wayside in terms of dominance and power games. With the acceleration of decentralization, which inherently means our distrust in what we thought was true, we will see a much more correlated increase in this as well. Let's bring back the quote of Ben Shapiro again, the one about quote-unquote replacing the legacy media. In that quote, Shapiro is deliberately stating the compromised state of one of our greatest institutions of power within American society, and his full intent on ridding us of its existence. Should a shift like this be done correctly and within reason, this is fine. But what if it's not? What if Shapiro's wrong? What if it just creates a monster that's even worse? The last thing we need in this country is more echo chambers where people get their, get their sometimes right, sometimes wrong thoughts constantly reaffirmed with abandon. Their egos get inflated and so do their feelings of superiority. Everything becomes about power and everything against it becomes a threat, rinse and repeat. It is one thing to form a community. It's a complete other thing to form a tribe. A community is built to perform the welfare of a community. A tribe is built to survive. That's it. There is no higher purpose. It's either they eat or get eaten by something, someone else. It terrifies me every time I look online and see good and innocent people getting punched at Black Lives Matter rallies or kicked in the head at a MAGA march. Why can't there be peace? Why can't we just leave each other be? Because decentralization and postmodernism do not allow for and do not allow for it. That's why. It's supposed to be a jarring change. It's supposed to shock the system because it is inherently changing the system. This is the rock bottom of what can happen, and it's more likely than we think. Many countries and empires have fallen because of this type of rhetoric, of rhetoric and thought. The American country and empire is stronger than them all, but this will be the ultimate stress test. Because really, when you think about it, if things do get that tribal of a point, what is the point of having a country at all? Aristotle didn't believe in democracy. He thought it was too unstable. And he has a point. 
because democracy is inherently unstable. There is no centralized authority like a dictator or monarch to keep the foot on people's necks. The people always get to have an opinion. They always get to decide. Here are some of the things that have happened within the past few years. Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico have nearly been named states. California has had serious discussion about breaking up into three states. Texas has considered seceding from the Union numerous times. Cities have been burned to a crisp in near-anarchist revolutions. People are fleeing from major cities to highly populated states in droves. Wall Street is upending itself. The beer virus pandemic has put our fundamental freedoms and rights into serious jeopardy of being violated. Canada and Australia have been turned into police states. Political polarization is at an all-time high. There are some people who think that this will culminate in the Second Civil War. A lot like the Terminator, a lot like Terminator 2, only a lot less cool and a lot more real. They think that the country will split into two or three pieces and we will go on living. This may seem far-fetched, and it probably is, but it's not unreasonable. No one is crazy, to quote Morgan Housel. A house divided cannot stand. If we become as divided as we are projecting towards, and we should pray to whatever God or force you pray to every day for this not to happen, this will happen. Decentralization, while proving to be very beneficial in some cases, can also be highly detrimental in others. To speak the old saying, if you really want to play with fire, you better learn how to control it first. But can you really control fire? Ask anyone currently living in the beautiful state of California. You can't. However, we can pre take preventative measures. We can use small fires to prevent the whole forest from burning down. We can take measured steps to make sure the first is not being burned too bright or too hot. We can take whatever measures we can try to control the monster within and not unleash it and all its awesomely destructive potential onto the world. But to do so, we must reclaim the mantle of what started this whole mess. Honesty. So what the fuck should we do? The question we must ask ourselves is, are either of the two scenarios above going to happen? And the definitive answer would be no, they are not. Well, at least not completely. Like most things, it's going to be pretty split down the middle. People will take this both ways. A lot of the good and a lot of the bad shit will happen. We need to be and should be prepared for both. I'm not telling you to go out and plant sunflowers or start hoarding for an inter-country nuclear civil war. But I am telling you to be prepared for whatever happens, should it happen. The first thing I think we should expect is that tribalism will keep rising, at least in the short term. I tend to look at the time we're living in as being akin to the 1960s, where things like institutional racism and that whole Vietnam War thing were very real issues. Social issues ran rampant not only with the civil rights movement, but with the emergence of homosexual culture and the massive economic boom happening post-World War II. However, we also must remember that things were much worse back in the 1960s than it is now. Jim Crow laws deliberately were written into law to harm black Americans. Lynchings were still a thing. Violent race riots in Harlem tore their communities to shreds. The Vietnam War is probably the most disastrous foreign policy decision in American history. Arguably the four most influential figures of the decades, John and Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X, were all brutally assassinated. Women were subjected to horrendous working conditions. Ever seen Mad Men before? Literally every single grown man that shows a sexual, sexual predator. Like, literally everyone. 
But yet we persevered. The country nearly tore itself apart, but then it came back together, culminating in the free love movement, hippies, and peace signs. It wasn't easy, but it happened. What happened afterwards was that people were basically not willing to re-enter that horrific decade, so they decided to coexist with one another until we got around to 2015 when shit started getting really tense again. It's like Peter Clemenza said in The Godfather, these things gotta happen every once in a while, get rid of all the bad blood. Quote, What we need to do is view it as just the natural order of things. It is simply a change in society, nothing more, nothing less. The problem is that most of us are not good with change. And in fact, a lot of us hate it. That's the underlying reason why people have hated 2020 so much. With COVID, racial protests, lockdowns, and everything in between, this year has been a Pandora's box of anything and everything dealing with change. Many people, when confronted with change, tend to dwell on what, what was, and that is a mistake. I do it too often to know that, the right thing, that is the right thing to do. It is not. I personally don't do well with change at all. This year has been very hard for me to personally take on, in 2020 that is. It's a part of the reason why I began to write this blog and eventually start this podcast. I knew there was going to be a lot coming my way that wasn't COVID or social related, so I wanted to have an outlet where I could talk about these things in a raw and unfiltered way. The short story of Who Moved My Cheese by Dr. Spencer Johnson has been lauded as one of the great change management books in modern, modern history. I was going through a rough patch in my mental state regarding change at the time, and I wanted to bludgeon myself over the head with it until I got all the feeling out that I needed to. The book is a fictional story, which is also much needed. I needed to read more fiction, and I think we all do as well. So much of the stuff that society tells us is good nowadays can indeed be good, but only when balanced a little bit of lightheartedness to make the mood brighter when you need it to be. A lot of what you read about change is very catered to just please without addressing the core of the problem. After reading the story, I came to peace with what I was thinking about, did some hard things that needed to be done, sat on my couch, and sobbed my fucking eyes out. One of the true hallmarks of the OG Call Her Daddy one run was that one of the two co-hosts made fun of how guys cry versus how girls cry. Girls cry more often, but they cry less hard. Guys hold back their tears, but man, when they let them go, it's an absolute shit show. I don't know how many men are willing to admit this, but it's almost so true that it hurts. So... I did what only a broken man can do when he hits a low point. I texted my mom. I told her how much I loved her, how much I appreciated her, and how much of a good person she was. She, being all of those things, made me feel better. Soon, I was moving past those feelings of sadness and began to be grateful for the things that I did possess. I cried more happy but still sad tears, prayed, and went to bed at peace. The overwhelming lesson of who moved my cheese is to move with the change, not dwell on what has happened. We must keep moving our feet, especially in a change that is going to affect all of us. We didn't know what was going to happen throughout this process of societal decentralization before, but now we really don't know what's going on to the added variable of COVID-19 in the mix. Just another wrench in the plan of life. What to expect in the short term? Tribalism will go up. Tensions will continue to run high. Depending on what happens to this mess of an election and what did happen, well, I guess we all know what happened then. It could and probably did get worse. And depending on things like the Senate races in Georgia and the antitrust lawsuit against Google, that of which was significant impact and nothing in terms of both those things in consequence, they got even worse still. But none of that matters in the end. We must be prepared for all of it. Because whether we're prepared for it or not, change will happen. Long periods of tribalism eventually dissolve one way or another. All wars end. All conflict stops. 
It's just a matter of what the end result is. But we should not let the end results drive this conversation and this narrative. No. When we treat things as a means to an end and not in the end of itself, that's when people with agendas start to get in the way and distort change for their own gain. We must take care of ourselves first and put our own houses in order before we try to enforce anything upon the world. The best way to do that is to accept change and move towards it with all of our strength. Because in the end, the only thing we can do is compromise. Compromise is the only thing that will get us through this, hopefully, in one piece. Because when change happens, both sides must give something up in order to make that change as easy as it can on people. And that is who is going to have to force the issue. People. People need to be willing to be dangerous, step out of their comfort zone, and bear that change with all the strength that they can muster. Be a rock among the waves. So many people are bad at change, and it shows. They lie. They try to enforce themselves on other people to bully and intimidate them. The one thing that you can do to make it possible is to be honest. Only through being unbreakable in our honesty towards one another can we have a hope of bridging the gap. That's the difference between a cult and religion, remember? We must be honest about how we can feel change, why we want things to happen, and why we don't want things to happen. The hatred and the lies get us nowhere. We must learn to be decent again. So, I challenge you in the most challenging time of our lives. Be on the side of good in this transition. Be a rock, not the waves washing over it. We're going to need a lot of rocks to get us through these times and the times that will come after them. Be a rock. When massive changes happen, we cannot massively change ourselves should we be doing the right things. We must weather the change, move with the change, and then enact our values in the new environment that springs from the change. Sometimes, unprecedented times call for completely precedent ways of behavior. If we are stalwart in our behavior and our values, transitions will come and go without our society suffering. People make societies last. Changes do not. Our society's decentralization is cause for concern, but it is also a cause for celebration and hope. The possibilities that we have at our disposal have yet to be seen by hardly any population in the history of our world. While we can admire the past, we must prepare adequately for the future to position ourselves to be on the winning side of this transition. It is highly unlikely that either the good or the bad scenario occurs in full capacity. It will be a mixture of both. However, if we play this right, we can have it be more good than it is bad. That will be a major win not only for us, but for the rest of the world as well. We should take charge and lead the way. We have in many ways before, and to the greater benefit of all that come before, along with us. We will make mistakes, but we must always fail, and fail forward. And who knows, maybe those mistakes fall and fails forward will be brought to you by the Trump News Network one day. Ah, okay, everybody. So that is an article about what I think is kind of a cool thing that's going on. A cool thing, a scary thing, kind of all the things, all the things involved into one thing. So that's going to be it for this week, guys. Uh, we got another new post coming next week. So super excited about that again on the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?